I hope that's where you put your hope, where you put your confidence, what you lean into as you live this life. Have you ever had to make a promise, a vow, an oath, and it's costly? It costs you something. Whether it's a business venture that you enter into and you find that maybe it's not as profitable as you hoped it would be. It's a promise you make to a friend or to a, an organization. Maybe you say, yeah, I'll, I'll come and work with you for three months. Yeah, I'll, I'll come and help you move for the day. It ends up being almost more than 24 hours helping somebody move. Maybe it's you're in the military. You give away three to four years of your life for service and it feels costly. It may even be the vow of for better or worse in marriage. And while God intends that for good, it seems more worse than better because of the selfishness that's taking place in that marriage. But we serve a God that's unchangeable, unshakable, unstoppable. And even when those vows are costly, He desires us to keep them. Because we live in a world, honestly, where people only keep their word, only keep their oath, only keep their vow if it's good for them. If it's costing them, well, then they're looking for any way out. They're looking for any way out. The Lord says He values those who keep their word. If you've been in Psalm 15, here's how it starts out. The Lord, the psalmist is asking the question, Who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain that it be in your presence? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart. And then you go on down to this list. And at the end, at verse 4, it says, One who keeps an oath, even when it hurts. And they do not change their mind. They're willing to pay a costly price for that promise. The Lord values this because it reflects well Himself. A God who keeps His word, who's unchangeable, who's unshakable, it, it mirrors His character. And if you know God's big story in the Scriptures, you know that he actually made an oath. He comes to a man named Abraham and he tells him that I'm going to bless all nations through your seed. But as you see that promise, that oath, that vow develop, it becomes costly to the living God. But he keeps his word because it's impossible for our God to lie. That verse is out of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. You'll see that on the cover of your, your bulletin. And that gives us hope. That gives us something to lean into, to put our hope into. That when he says, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we can lean into him and take him at his word. And we can sing with confidence, Hallelujah! All I have is Christ. Because Christ is what I need. 
Not my ability to please God in my own fallen way. Because I can't. You can't. We can't. God has made an oath. And it costs Him. But it's for our blessing. And today, we're going to be back in the book of Judges. If you have your Bible, you might want to crack it open to chapter 10 and 11. And we're going to look at a flawed people. (laughs) That doesn't change. And we're going to look at a flawed judge who seems to make a presumptuous vow to guarantee success and deliverance for himself. And it's a costly vow, as we find out. But it points again to a greater vow, a greater promise that God has made to us. So before we dive in, let me pray for us, and then we will look and see what God has for us today. So Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son. He was a costly gift to keep your vow to us for your own sake. And this is your word. God breathed. Open the eyes of our hearts to receive it, to take it in, to let it do its work in us. Where it needs to rebuke, let it rebuke. Where it needs to heal, let it heal. But Holy Spirit, take it, use it, and help it point us to you, our Lord and our God. Get glory for yourself through the preaching of your word and grow us into men and women who are more like Jesus. And Lord Jesus, it is in your name I pray these things. Amen. So as I said, we're going to go through two chapters today. So I'm going to keep the train rolling quickly, and I'm going to have to summarize some things that probably more just details along the way. But again, we are back in uh, chapter 9. We met an abysmal judge named Abimelech who took the throne for himself, if you will. became judge himself, and it was horrible. It was horrible for three years. And if you were here last week, it was pretty much a train wreck. I'm I'm not going to summarize it. You can read it uh, or you can listen to the sermon from last week. But after three years, God graciously raises up two judges, the beginning of chapter 10. He raises up Tola, who's of the tribe of Issachar. And he reigns and rules for 23 years. And then a man named Jair of Gilead, which is actually in the, the, land, the half-tribe of Manasseh, he leads for 22 years. And then there's, there's 45 years of grace, basically. And the Scripture says that God used them to save Israel. Save them from what? Save them from themselves, honestly. Because they, again, were trying to follow other gods, and, and these judges keep calling them back, no, the Lord, He is your God. Follow Him. And so... I mean, the people didn't repent. They didn't say, oh, we've sinned. God just appoints these judges as an act of His good grace. But, as we've seen in in Judges, when the judge dies, the people oftentimes fall away. So when Jair dies, finally, after 45 years of grace, this is what happens in verse 6. Again, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroths, and the gods of Aram, and the gods of Sidon, and the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. 
And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. And for 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites called out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God, serving the Baals. So, the people seek to reconcile with what I call their outcast God. They were trading the Lord in for a new model. But it wasn't going so well for them. And they realized it. And so they turned back to him. But the Lord isn't so quick to take them back this time. You see, a developing pattern is like, okay, hey, look at verse 11. The Lord replied, when the Egyptians and the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Men- um, Mayanites, which actually is the Midianites, opposed, oppressed you and cried to me for help. Did I not save you from their hands? The answer is yes. But you have forsaken and served other gods. So I will no longer save you. Go cry to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. We've played this game before. You're unfaithful, you call on my name, I rescue you, and you return right back. Over and over and over again. So, hey, go serve the gods you've chosen. Go for it. See how that works out for you. It's a pretty stark moment. I don't know about you, I wouldn't want to hear that from God. I wouldn't want to be left to my own devices. But here's the thing, and this is what peers into our own hearts. The question is, were they returning to the Lord because of the consequences they were suffering? Or because they actually believed, like, you know what? I have sorrow in my heart. I've been unfaithful to God. And there's actual sense of repentance here. Like, man, I've been breaking God's heart. When you and I are going our own merry way and doing our own thing and God lets us suffer the consequences, do we return to Him because we just don't like suffering or because we said, you know what, I, I've offended you, God. I'm like an unfaithful spouse. So often God calls his people adulteresses. God looks at the covenant between himself and his people as like a marriage. You're being unfaithful to me. And that's all throughout Scripture. It breaks his heart. Do we think about how we're affecting God in our infidelity? Or are we just wanting God to conveniently take away the stress, the consequences? The people realize, for the, at least for this moment, that there is only one God. And they need to be reconciled to Him. So here's what they do. Verse 15. The Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us. Then they got rid of their foreign gods among them and served the Lord. So they confess it and say, you're right, God, we were unfaithful. 
They surrender, say, okay, do with us whatever you see, think is right. And then they repent. They get rid of those foreign gods, those adulterous relationships, spiritually, if you will. And it's, you know what's interesting, though? It's at the end of verse 16, it says this. And he, that is speaking about the Lord, could bear Israel's misery no longer. I'm going to read that again. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Yes, God is heartbroken and hurt for infidelity, but he also feels the suffering of his people. And it is, it's tearing up him up inside. And so God is going to do something. He's going to do something. It doesn't quite take place right away. Things need to develop. Because another relationship needs to be resolved before it's on an earthly level, before he can deliver. Verse 17. And the Ammonites were called, when the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. So, a job search goes out. Hey, the Ammonites are attacking. We need somebody with some military experience. And nothing is happening. The job search went on there. Indeed is not producing anything. And they're going, what do we do? And they search a little bit deeper. They need to look a little bit closer. Because they've overlooked somebody. And here's where we come into chapter 11, verse 1. The people seek to reconcile with their outcast kinsmen. Jephthah, the Gileadite, a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His, his namesake is why the, the land was named Gilead. But his mother was a prostitute. That's a problem. Gilead's wife, there's another woman, Gilead actually has a wife, bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, and the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah in the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander and fight the Ammonites. You know, this story that Jephthah goes through, it's, it's a story that's probably been true through history over and over again. Where a child is punished for the sins of his parents or her parents, what his mother or her father did. Jephthah had no control over what his parents did. He had no control over whose house he was born in. And so when the time comes, as he grows up, his half-brothers selfishly exclude him from the inheritance and the family, and he's kicked out of the land, and he basically becomes a robber, a bandit with his own gang, if you will. But the survival of the tribe is now in peril. And we need somebody. We need somebody with some 
martial arts, some military background, somebody who's got some military prowess. So they said, you know, what about Jephthah? I mean, he's a pretty bad dude. Maybe we need to call on him. And so they do. They call on their outcast kinsmen. But the wounds of the past can't just be swept under the rug like it never happened. And it needs to be addressed. And Jephthah says to them in verse 7, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? And the elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us and fight the Ammonites, and you will be the head over all of us who live in Gilead. Yeah, you're right. We, we weren't very kind to you, but, but we need you, man. We need you. The, the, the tribe is at stake. The clan is at stake. Have you noticed how this kind of mirrors God? And what happens to Jephthah? God says, hey, you, you got rid of me. You're coming to me now that you're in trouble? Jephthah says, hey, you got rid of me. You're coming to me now that I'm in trouble? Both of them respond yes. And neither of them seems to take retribution or vengeance because of it. But Jephthah, he's, he's not done. He needs some reassurance. He wants these leaders to take an oath. And so verse 9, Jephthah says, Suppose you take me back to fight the Amorites. Ammonites, excuse me, there's a difference. And you'll, I'll, I'll pronounce that here in a minute. The Lord gives, <coughs> and, and the Lord gives them to me. Will, you, will I really be your head? So if, if I come and fight for you, am I going to really be your head? Or are you going to kick me to the curb after I win? Hmm? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord as our witness. We're taking an oath. He's our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people and and you know, made the people and made him head the commander over them. And he repeated all the words before the Lord at Mitzpah. So this is confirmed before the Lord. They swear an oath. He becomes the leader. I guess I ask the question, are there people that we sometimes treat as less than? We treat them poorly because we think certain negative things about them. We've kind of kicked them to the curb. And it's not until there's a crisis that we, we value them. That ought not be in the people of God. It takes a crisis to recognize their value. It shouldn't. But now that Jephthah is now installed as the leader of Gilead, as their leader, it's interesting. He's a resourceful man. You know, he's, he's been out in the desert as a bandit. And you would think that his first response was, would be brute strength, but it's not. It's diplomacy. Interesting. Maybe he really is God's chosen leader. So he sends a message to the Ammonite king. And basically says, why are you attacking me? What's our problem? And what we get into is kind of a historical dispute. In essence, the, the king of the Ammonites says, you guys took our land and we're taking it back. 
And Jephthah goes, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. So here's where I'm going to give you a little background information, and I'm going to basically summarize verses 12 through 28. And I promise to not lose you. At least my wife tells me not to. So here's the thing. When Israel comes out of Egypt, right, and they wander around in the desert for 40 years, and then God starts to take them to the promised land, they come up to this area. It's on the east side of the Jordan. And there are three people groups we need to account for. The Moabites, who are sons of Moab, who is a son of Lot. And Lot is the nephew of Abraham. You, You can read about that at the end of Genesis 19. It's kind of a nefarious uh, coming about of life. And then you've got the Ammonites. Ammonites, who are the sons of Ammon, who are also sons of Lot. Okay, so they've got their own tribe in that area, own territory. And then you've got the Amorites. The Amorites. And they are basically a group of Canaanites. They're like the Philistines. And they're not related to anybody in the Israelite family. And the way you can remember the Amorites is in Italian, the word amore means love. Well, there's no love lost between them and anyone. Okay? Because they came in and took land from the Moabites and from the Ammonites and and made their own little colony there. And they had a, a... a king named Sion, who was a tyrant. And they controlled that whole area on the east side of the Jordan. So here you've got Israel trying to come into the promised land, right? They come to the, Mo- the, the Moabites and say, hey, can we travel through your land to get to the promised land? No, no. Hey, Ammonites, can we come through your land and, and get to, to the land? No, no. Hey, Amorites, can we come through your land? And they send an army out to attack Israel. And so there's a fierce battle, and the Lord delivers the whole land of the Amorites into the hand of the Israelites. That's what happens. And so the Lord gives them this land, and three tribes, actually two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they say, hey, this land is great. Can we stay here? And Moses says, okay, if you send your fighting men to come with us on the other side, that's great. And so that's what happens. Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, which become the Gileadites, they have this whole area on the east side of the Jordan. At the time, the Moabites didn't complain. At the time, the Ammonites didn't complain. Well, 300 years later, when it's militarily expedient to take this land over, the Ammonites say, oh, you took our land. And Jephthah's going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Let's do our history here. The Moabites didn't complain. You, your forefathers didn't complain. And now, 300 years later, you want our land? It would be like the Spanish coming to the United States and saying, give us back the land from Louisiana, Louisiana all the way to Florida. Because the United States bought the land from the French in the Louisiana Purchase. That was our land. It was taken from us. You took it from us. No, we didn't take it from you. We bought it from France. Again, we didn't take the land from you Ammonites. We 
the Lord gave us the Amorites into our hand. You didn't mind. The Moabites didn't mind. It's our land. What's the problem? The problem is the Amorites wanted the land. It's just greed. And so the king of Moab, he ignores them. He ignores them and sends his people to attack. So, Jephthah, is the, he's the leader, he's the judge, now he has to fight. Verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh and through Mitzpah of Gilead. From there he advanced against the Ammonites. So the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him. God is using him. And verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. Listen to this. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Remember that. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Arior to the vicinity of Minith as far as Abel, Kiramim, and Israel subdued Ammon. So the Lord gives Ammon into his hands. He's a victor. Ammon is vanquished. And Jephthah is vindicated before his whole clan and his family. But there's still the little matter of this vow. Of this costly vow. You see, Jephthah wanted to put a little mustard on his prayer with God. Hey, hey tell you what, God. If you'll do me a solid here, I've got an offer for you. I want to ensure the victory. I want to ensure success. I'm going to be willing to make a deal with you. Carrie and I were talking about this. I wonder if his motive was he wanted so badly to be vindicated before his, his people, his brothers. He wanted to say, I'll show you. Unfortunately, it was a selfish desire. He felt like he didn't make a deal with God. Listen to me. You make a deal with the devil, not with the living God. We come to him and hold out our hands to him and say, God, take me. Do in me what you will. And he gives us life. We don't make a deal with God. And sadly, it costs Jephthah very dearly. And if you know the story, you know where I'm going with this. There's a problem with this presumptuous vow. Verse 34. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of timbrels, this should be a great moment of celebration. She was his only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried. Oh no! My daughter! You have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord and I cannot, that I cannot break. Here's what's even more remarkable though. 
My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me, just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months, and she and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After two months, she returned to her father. He did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Amen. Let's close in prayer. If you're reading this for the first time, you're probably going, what is this? Why is this in God's Word? What do I even do with this? This is a horrible story. And yes, it's a brutal, it's a brutal account. But here's the thing that I love about the Bible. It's brutally honest. It does not candy coat the foolishness that our sin can lead us to, nor does it candy coat the horrible things that we could actually be capable of in our own flesh. You see, Jephthah's vow was presumptuous. He was presuming some things. Again, first of all, he sought to make a bargain with God. God, if you'll give me this, I'll give you this. He wasn't even sure what this was. But he wanted to bargain with God. He wanted to guarantee the outcome. And by the way, that's very pagan. That was a very pagan practice. That's why a lot of those pagans actually sacrificed their children to those gods. They wanted to feed the gods so the god would feed them. Give me what I want. I'll give you what you, you want. I'll, and you can give me what I want. Again, did you look at verse 29? Says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. That's all he needed for the victory. That's all he needed was the Spirit of the Lord to come upon him. But I asked the question, are you and I making deals with God in our prayer life? God, if, you, if, if I give you this, will you give me this? Are we bargaining with God and how we approach him? Number two, it was reckless. His vow was reckless. The first thing that comes out my door, God, what was he thinking? An animal? Maybe Fido, the dog? I don't know. A servant. You know, Levi. Hey, sorry, Levi, but, well, that's the way it goes. A neighbor. Just happened to be visiting. Hey, congratulations, you won the sacrifice lottery here. What was he thinking was going to come out his door? It was reckless. He was playing fast and loose with other people's lives. And tragically, it turns out to be his own daughter. You're reckless. Now you may say, it wasn't even her choice. 
But you have to understand, understand culturally, the father had life and death power over his children. It's definitely not a go-and-do-likewise story. So kids, you don't have to worry about it, all right? And there are other issues with this story from a biblical, biblical standpoint. The Lord detests human sacrifice. He says that in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 31. There's only one time where he commands human sacrifice, and that is with the man Abraham, with Isaac. And that is to test him, not to actually make the sacrifice. Do you trust me? Do you have your hope in me more than you have it in your promised son? And when he gets up to Mount Moriah and he raises the knife, God stops him. And then what happens? God provides the lamb. By the way, that Mount Moriah, 2,000 years later, would be the place where God provides the lamb, the ram. And if you want to be a lawyer about this, you get into Leviticus chapter 22 and you look about look at, at the vows, you know, the animals that you can offer for sacrifices. They have to be unblemished, but they're all animals. In fact, if you give a blemished animal, it's like, no, that won't work. That doesn't count. It's got to be perfect. So it had to be an animal. You know, I think the biggest problem we have with this, this passage, honestly, is not what Jephthah did. It's what God didn't do. God didn't intervene. We're saying, hey, wait a minute. Here's this man that God raises up, and then he allows him to do this? He doesn't stop him, even though he's biblically mistaken? And we don't know how much of God's word that Jephthah knew. I mean, you and I, we probably had multiple Bibles on our shelves. They didn't have that then. But here's the truth, folks. While God is sovereign, He allows each one of us to make choices. And He allows us to make choices that are going to matter. Choices that count. It's been true since the Garden of Eden. Proverbs 19.3 says, A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Are you angry at God for choices that you've made? God you, God, you could have stopped this. You could have prevented this. You're God. You can do anything. Yeah, I know. But I also honor you and the choices that you make. Can you trust that I can actually even work past those things even though? The Lord takes vows seriously. He tells us that in Deuteronomy 23. 21 through 23. He says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to repay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you'll be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. Again, God takes vows seriously. Don't call on God to certify your decision just to try and make Him bring success to what you're trying to do. Don't use God as a, a lucky charm. 
And there are times when it's appropriate to make a vow. In marriage, absolutely. I always tell a couple, when you make these vows, if you keep your vows, your vows will keep you. And that's true. But number two, in court testimony, we want God to bring out the truth. But when we're trying to you know, invoke God's name to you know, give a little veracity or convince people, we need to be careful about that. Jesus told us in Matthew 5, 33-37, don't, don't swear, don't make an oath. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. But here's something I want you to see, and as I wrestled with this, this is a hard passage, folks. This is a tough passage. And maybe you're looking at it kind of going, that just is hard. Where's the good that comes from this? I hope here, here's where it comes to you. Let the costly vow of this flawed judge point to something greater. Because every judge is somehow pointing to the Lord Jesus. Let it point to God's redemption and the gospel. And here's what I mean. Let's get back to Jephthah's daughter. When Jephthah tells her about his vow, what he's got to do, she doesn't say, oh, that's not fair. I had no say in that. Her, her response is, yeah. Father, that's what you have to do. You have to keep your word to God because he delivered you. He delivered and he vindicated you. And I love you so much, I want to do the will of my Father, even though it will cost me something. And I will weep for two months that I will never be married, and I'll lose my life. And it's costly. But it was what she saw as the means to vindicate her malign father and deliver the people from oppression. She wants the Father to be honored. I don't know about you, it may be mistaken theology, but it sure is an, an uh, admirable attitude. Right? But even so, from this flawed example, look what it points to. Jesus, who is the true Son of God, who comes to earth to do the Father's will. This is what it points to. You see, God the Father made mankind in His image, and we rebelled against Him. We choose to follow other gods, other things we think that are going to give Him life. And we continue to do so, and He is grieved by our faithlessness. But He's also distressed by the misery that we're in. Just as God was distressed with the misery that Israel was in, the misery that we are under the sentence of death and we are stuck, and we are trapped, and there's no way out unless someone intervenes. Unless someone moves heaven and earth. And there's only one who can do that. So God made a costly vow. Even though we can't see it in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that I will bless all nations through your seed. Again, that's not a blessing so that we'll be happy wealthy and wise. It's a blessing so that we can be reconciled to our God above. We who are in rebellion can be reconciled and made children of God 
And that price of justice that each of us owes will be paid by the Son of God who comes to do the will of the Father. Indeed, God has provided the Lamb. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that vow, that that promise he made was costly. If you are horrified by this story about what happens to Jephthah's daughter, are we again horrified by what happens to the Son of God as he goes to the cross because of our sin, our rebellion? Yes, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and remember, it's a time for celebration, but it's also a moment of like of sorrow. This is, this is what it took to rescue you, to rescue me. It was a costly vow. And I'm so glad God keeps His word. I'm so glad. Because without Him, I'm lost. Without Him, you're lost. But here's the silver lining within all this. Jesus, the Son, who does the will of the Father, even though he goes to a death, he doesn't stay dead. Because he is the Lord of life. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though they die, yet will they live. Yet will they live. The greatest tragedy in life, folks, is not that you or I would lose our life. The greatest tragedy in our life, <laughs> for Jephthah's daughter, for you and me, is that we would die without coming to put our faith in the one who at great cost came and offered himself up willingly to do the will of the Father, to buy us back to him. Again, a costly vow. But I am convinced, even as Jephthah's daughter put her faith in Jephthah and in the Lord, she is alive right now. Christ has covered her. She is alive and well. Again, the greatest tragedy is not that you would die, it's that you would die without Christ. And my question is, have you put your faith in the Son who came at great cost for you? Have you done it? Because He wants to give you His life. He's not looking to take life from you, He's looking to give life to you. To as many as received him, even those who believe in his name, to them he gave the right to become the child, the children of God. Is that true of you? And if it's not, today could be a changing moment for you. Let me close with the last words of the first epistle of John in chapter 5. This is what he says. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He or she who has the Son has life. He or she who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Do you have the Son? Let me pray and I'm going to invite Bobby and the worship team to come and close us. Again, Lord God, this is a difficult passage.
but I thank you for how it points to a greater reality. A greater reality that you, at great cost to yourself, loved us enough to send your Son. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we worship you and we praise you for that. That you are God that keeps your word. And my friend, if you're in this audience tonight, or you're even online, and you know you've not yet yet put your faith in Christ, you've not yet put your faith in Him, the day could be the day that changes your whole life, changes your your whole eternity. And I'm going to ask you to pray along with me if if you want to change that today. If God is calling you to, to Himself. My words are not magic. Just the expression of a sincere heart that wants to respond to God in faith. So Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I've been doing my own thing. And I'm paying the consequences of that. And Lord, I know it breaks your heart. So forgive me and let me turn to you. Turn to you and what you have done in sending your Son to die on the cross, to pay my sin's penalty. And then, as I put my faith in you to give me life, both now on this side of heaven and then for eternity. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Come, Lord Jesus, come take residence in my heart. Come change me. Make me the man. Make me the woman that you want me to be. And have your way in me and live your life in me. Give me life that I don't have in myself. And again, Father, we thank you that you are gracious. You made a costly vow and you sent your son for us. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen.